Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast, brought to you by... The new 61 Chevy Corvair. Corvair gives you peppier performance with greater economy in a complete line that includes four new wagons unlike anything ever built in America before. See the 61 Chevy Corvair at your quality Chevrolet dealer. Today's guest on the Lost Ballparks podcast is not just a Pittsburgh Pirates legend, but he's also, at 94 years old, the oldest living former member of the Montreal Expos. And when I recently caught up with him, he was in the kitchen, busy making dinner. I'm making corned beef roast right now. Oh, that sounds delicious. I I got it in a pot. Cooking. Corned beef roast? How do you cook it? Boil it. Do you have any good seasoning that you use? Well, when you buy a corned beef, it's already got the seasoning in there. You just have to dump it in the the pot. Boil it for three, four hours. So while the corned beef was boiling, Roy and I talked about him being signed by Branch Rickey his dominance in the 1960 World Series, what he thought about Roberto Clemente as a teammate, and spending the end of his career north of the border at Jerry Park as a member of the Montreal Expos. Welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area in center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a Twilight Doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. Go pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. Elroy Face, welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. So good to have you on. I, when I was reading your story, I honestly, this blew my mind. The fact that you didn't really start playing or any kind of organized baseball until you were 16. Is that true? Yeah, we didn't have no Little League, no nothing back home. And I didn't do any playing until I got to high school. You were really one of the first pitchers to be considered a closer. In fact, you were the first Major League Baseball player to save 20 games more than one time. Right, right. And what I find interesting is that you hold so many baseball records that still stand today, including the Pirates franchise record for career games pitched, career games finished, and saved. And when you retired after the 1969 season, you were third all-time in Major League pitching appearances behind only Hoyt Wilhelm and Cy Young. Did you ever think that your career would last for 17 seasons? Well, I never knew how much, how long it was going to last. So I was up one year, and I was just sent back down for a year, and then I come back up. I didn't have a, an off-speed pitch. I had a fastball and a curveball. That's all I had when I come up. That's when I went four years in the minor leagues, just fastball and a curveball. So Ricky sent me down to New Orleans to work on an off-speed pitch, and that's where I developed the forkball. Which you were famous for. So, And back in the day, a lot of ball players had to make ends meet by having a job in the off-season. Did you have a job in the off-season? Well, I was carpenter by trade, yeah. What kind of things would one, you work on? One year, uh, I went back home. My dad and I and this other kid, that we worked in a woolen mill in the wintertime. Made woolen materials. We worked there for one winter. You were initially selected by Branch Rickey and the Brooklyn Dodgers before the 1951 season. 
And after a great year for the Pueblo Dodgers, where you won 23 games, you were probably all set to play at Ebbets Field, but the Pirates swooped in and drafted you in the 1952 Rule 5 draft, so that meant you were playing your first game at Forbes Field in 1953. What were your impressions of Forbes Field the first time you walked into the ballpark? Well, it was a big, it was a big park. <laughs> it was bigger than most of them. <laughs> you know, it was a long time ago. You're right. <laughs> it was a few years, right? I've seen photos of it, but I just want you to confirm that the batting cage used during pregame batting practice would be driven out by a tractor out to deep center field and then left there during the game. Is that right? Right, yeah. And I never, very seldom, maybe once or twice in the, all the time I was there, that it interfered with the fielder. I mean, never came into play with 457 of dead center field. Yeah, so not many people could hit it out there anyway. Right. Yeah, well, Stewart's the only one to hit over the, by the flagpole. Dick Stewart? Yep, that's the longest part of the park. Mantle hit one in the World Series to right center, which probably would have cleared the fence in center if he hit it there, but it was over to right center. Your first few seasons in the big leagues, you were struggling a bit as a spot starter, but then in the late 1950s, the Pirates made you a relief pitcher, and in 1959, you pitched in 57 games, winning an astounding 18 games in relief, you finished the season with a 9.47 winning percentage, which is still the highest in baseball history. That's right. That's right. When I first started, well, I was 19 years old when I first started in, in minor leagues, and I ended up 14 and 2 that year. They sent me back the next year, and I was 18 and 5 the next year, and they left me up for draft. That's when Ricky drafted me and sent me to Pueblo. I ended up tw- 23 and 9 that year. And I- I went to Fort Worth, and I, I, I believe I, I led the league in earned run average, except for starters, I believe, in 54. But 59 to win 18 games in relief, that is incredible. Well, actually, I had 22 in a row. I had five from the year before, and then 17 and 59. And yet 22 consecutive wins. Over two years, yeah. I, I won my last five in 58, and I won my first 17 in 59. So I had 20, 22 straight without a loss. All right, we got to talk about 1960. You won 10 games that year and finished with 24 saves. It was a magical year for you and the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates won 95 games, win the pennant, and are set to face the New York Yankees in the World Series. It was just 33 years ago to this day, October the 5th, that these same two teams battled for the baseball championship. And in that year, 1927, the Yankees swept through the Pirates in four straight. And the Yankees are favored again this year. No question, the Yankees were a great team, but the Pirates with Roberto Clemente, Mazeroski, uh, Verdon, Law, and your arm were a special team, too. Well, yeah, well, we ended up beating them. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been your first experience playing at Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah. Yeah, what do you remember? Well, I, I, I had been there before, but it was after a ball game, and they had a fight at Yankee Stadium, so we stayed over and we watched the fight. Oh, for like a, a boxing match? Yeah. What do you remember about that ballpark? I mean, what was it like playing where Babe Ruth played? Oh, well, it's not much different. He wasn't there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was short right field. That's all I could say about it. It was a real short right field. So did that affect at all how you pitched hitters? I never pitched hitters to their weakness. I always... Left it up to the catcher. He could tell where the batter was standing and how his feet were. And he could tell if he wanted the ball inside or outside. He just, whatever he called, 
I usually threw and aimed for his glove, wherever it was, inside, outside. Uh, I don't think in my 15 years here in Pittsburgh, I don't believe I shook a batter, the hitter off, or, I mean, the catcher. I don't, I don't think I sick him off or two or three times. Wow. Other than that, I just threw whatever they called. Yeah. And aim for their, aim for their glove. If they wanted inside, they had aim for the inside. If it was outside, aim for the outside. That's all. All right, so game one of the 1960 World Series. It is a beautiful day in Pittsburgh. Sunny, blue skies. The temperature 60 degrees here, just prior to the start of game one of the 1960 World Series. Yes, the American League champion New York Yankees against the National League champion Pirates of Pittsburgh in the 57th annual Greatest Show on Earth, Baseball's World Series. You come in in the eighth inning. Well, Elroy Face, considered by a lot of baseball men as the greatest little relief pitcher in baseball today, is on the mound. And the first guy you face in a World Series game is Mickey Mantle. Mantle, powerfully built, a number seven on his back. Were you nervous? No, no, no. Never nervous going in there. <laughs> little right-hander, stands 5'8", weighs 155 pounds, soaking wet. They've said many things about Face. They've called him sensational, amazing, fantastic. Here's a straight ball. He's looking out on the fuck ball. Mantle looked at it, and he's called out on strikes for the second straight time. And there's one of the reasons why they call Elroy Face unbelievable or fantastic or sensational or what have you. That fork ball he threw Mantle dropped the foot, and Mickey stood there with a bat on the shoulder. It looked, Chuck, like he wanted to pull the trigger, but he couldn't. That's the kind of a pitch that they say just falls off the table, Jack. Honestly, Roy, you think about it, the number of people in the world who can say that they struck out Mickey Mantle in a World Series game, that's got to be a pretty small group of people, and you are one of them. That's what I was there for. The next hitter was Yogi Berra. Here's Yogi now. He has singled. He's fly deep to center, and he's popped up to left. He's one for three. Sun still shining brilliantly here in Pittsburgh. It's been out all day. Cool breeze blowing from the right field corner toward the left field corner. One and on the Yogi man. Here's a fork ball. It's over the plate but low, and it's two and oh. Just missed by a whisker. Faces a carpenter in Pittsburgh during the offseason. And if you want to really get corny, you can say that he has nailed down many victories this year for these Bucks. Swinging a fly ball, short right field. Here's the right fielder, Clemente, coming on. He's getting under the ball while on the run. He makes the catch, and the runners hold at first and second base. Two gone. And Face has done exactly what Danny Murtaugh asked him to do. He came in and struck out Mantle. He just got Barra on a pop fly. And then you strike out the Yankees' hard-hitting first baseman, Bill Scoward. Well, he may be small in size, that face, but what determination. His heart's as big as his body. Two strikes on Scourin, two on and two out on the Yankee eight. The ball game at Forbes Field, game one of the 1960 series. And here's the pitch to Scourin. Struck him out. Describe that moment walking to the dugout after shutting down the heart of the Yankees in the biggest game on the biggest stage at Forbes Field. What was that like? Well, uh, I've done it other times during my career, so it wasn't any different. (laughs) In Game 4, you do it once again, saving the game for the Pirates. Uh, The only thing I I remember outstanding that I I remember is Dale Long. He did eight home runs in eight, eight games for the Pirates when he was here, and I played with him. And he came in the pitch hit with a couple of guys on for the last out, and he popped up the right field. Face throws. 
A high fly ball into shallow right field. Clemente is coming in. Mazeroski's going back. Clemente calls for it. He's under it. He's got it. The game is over. And the Pirates win. Game five. You come in again and record yet another save, your third World Series save for the Pirates. Base winding, little Elroy cuts loose. 1-1 one, one pitch, swinging a long drive, right field. Clemente back there, under the ball, he's got it. Pirates win 5-2. That ball was hit hard. Finally, Roy, the series is tied three games apiece. The seventh and final game of the 1960 World Series was played at Forbes Field in front of just over 36,000 fans. And then... One of the most dramatic moments in baseball history with the game tied at nine. Well, a little while ago when we mentioned uh, that this one uh, in typical fashion was going right to the wire, little did we know. Bill Mazeroski led off the ninth inning. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep to left. Let's do it. Back to the wall goes Barra. It is over the fence. Home run. The Pirates win. Where were you sitting when he hit that home run or standing? In the clubhouse. Okay, wait, what? You were in the clubhouse? So you didn't even see the home run? No, Bird Law and I have been in the ballgame. We were in the clubhouse. You know what, though? Everybody forgets uh, Al Smith's home run in the eighth inning and put us two runs ahead. And Coates into the stretch. He sets. And the 2-2 to Smith. He swings a long fly ball deep to left field. I don't know. It might go out of here. It is going, going, going. If he don't get that, Maz would home run wouldn't mean nothing. Great point. Everybody, everybody forgets Al Smith's home run. Forbes Field is at this moment an outdoor insane asylum. We have seen and shared in one of baseball's great moments. Hal Smith was the bridge to Mazeroski. That's right, right. 36,683 fans were here, and that Mazeroski was jumping around the bases when he saw the ball disappear into Shenley Park like a little kid. With a brand new toy, and there's no reason uh, not to do anything like that because that fella gave himself and his teammates the 1960 Baseball World Championship and also about $8,500 a piece or $9,000 a piece, something like that. But So when Mazeroski hits that home run, you're in the clubhouse. Do you hear the roar of the crowd? Yeah, well, they, they started coming in, the players, and then uh, Prince is down there. And now to wind up this World Series broadcast... Let's pick up Bob Prince and some of those victorious, happy pirates. Bob, take it away. And Maz came in, and he didn't know Maz hit the home run because he was on his way from the up to the press box because they tied it up. And they said they got him, and they said get back down to the clubhouse. Pirates win, so he he came in the clubhouse, and Maz come in. He said, "Nice game, Maz. That was it. You know, he didn't know Maz hit the home run to win it." But then Bill Mazeroski tells him, hey, yeah, I hit the game-winning walk-off home run. Prince is excited, and he starts asking questions about the home run. Hey, wasn't that something, Billy? Oh, I can't even talk. I'm so tired. <laughs> What'd you do? You didn't have to run very far. Oh, what, was the, what, was, what was the pitch you hit, Bill? It was a high fastball. A high fastball. That did it, and the Pirates are the world's champions for the first time since 25. And then somewhere amongst the sea of people, the celebrations, the champagne, legendary Pirates voice Bob Prince finds you, Roy Face, to get your reaction. Here's Roy Face, who made four great appearances in the World Series and had the misfortune to see one go out against him by Yogi Berra. But, uh, Roy, you didn't mind that as long as we won. That's right. As long as the team wins, don't make a difference what happens to me. I'm, I'm happy the team won. 
Thank Dick the Bucks can't beat the Bucks, can they? No, sir, it can't beat the Bad Buckles. I'll tell you that. That's for sure. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We got them. We got them. They broke all the records and we won the game. How about that? There's a good one. Broke all the records and we won the game. Yeah, that's it. Where did you go after the game? Did you guys go anywhere to celebrate? Yeah, the club had us over to the Webster Hall Hotel for a celebration. But they said uh, Naz and his wife went up to Shelley Park and sat on a bench for a while. They didn't even they didn't come down to the hotel. <laughs> yeah, I bet he and his wife just wanted a second to reflect and take a little time to themselves. I'm sure that after the home run, the clubhouse celebrations, things were probably a bit chaotic and just nice to, to be able to catch their breath. For those who don't know, Shinley Park was on the other side of the outfield brick wall at Forbes Field. You can go to the University of Pittsburgh's campus today, see the spot where the home run that Mazeroski hit landed, and uh, sit on a park bench just like he and his wife did in Shinley Park. Honestly, it's an incredible story. Then uh, Maz and I and Bucky uh, Burgess were leaving the next day. We went up to New Jersey for an exhibition game, and then we went up to New York to Syracuse and played a couple exhibition games after the World Series. In 1960, you also made an appearance with late-night talk show legend Ed Sullivan to talk about how to throw a forkball. Do you remember that? Yep. I'd like you to illustrate what a forkball is so the country can understand it when they read well, it. Well, I hold it between my first two fingers like that mm-hmm. without any seams, and I throw it straight overhand like the fastball, and the ball will usually sink. I think that's unfair to our organized Yankees. I really do. It's awfully nice to have you. That was during the series. Oh, so while you were in New York, he had you on? Yeah. Just showed him how to hold a fork ball. That's all I did. But I think he was a Yankees fan, so he was hoping you would forget how to throw it. <laughs> Roy, for several years, you were teammates with Roberto Clemente. What do you remember most about him? That he was a good ball player. He yeah. He was a good ball player. What was his greatest attribute? Well, I don't know if he does anything any better than anybody else. Probably did it more often. How was he in the clubhouse? He wasn't a team player at that time. Later on, maybe he became more of a team player. But uh, early in his career, he, he was more for himself than anybody else. I remember one time he, he was dogging a little bit right field in Philadelphia. And Murtaugh, in the seventh inning, told him to go take a shower. He said, no, he said, I sit on a bench. Murtaugh says it will cost you $100 as long as you sit on the bench. $100 an inning. He went in and took a shower. And so that was at Shibe Park in Philadelphia, right? Or Connie Mack Stadium, as it was called then. Connie Mack, Connie Mack Stadium, yeah. Your final year in the big leagues, you played for the first-year expansion Montreal Expos at Jerry Park. That was an interesting little ballpark, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Had a swimming pool, right center, right field, uh, just past the wall, right field wall, and Stargill hit it there a couple times. Early in the season, in April, the frost coming out of the ground, you could go out there in the outfield and... It's like a waterbed, you know. You step on it, and it would be like, be like a waterbed. Some of the guys had problems with it, you know, because they're running it at soft spots and maybe lose their balance or whatever. I look back at pictures, Roy, of opening day for Jerry Park and the Montreal Expos was, I think, April 14th, 1969, and the grass was pretty brown. It looks frigid. Was it as cold as it looked in those pictures? Well, it was cold, yeah. That was their first year, and... uh I'm right now the oldest living Montreal Expo. Now, do you tell people that at the grocery store? <laughs> Whatever. Do you still have any of your Montreal Expo memorabilia, like a hat or game-worn jersey or anything like that that you kept? Baseball cards. What about the other stuff, like uh, bats and hats and jerseys? Well, I got to left it or what I left. 
I'd love to run through some of the old ballparks you played in. First of all, what was your favorite ballpark to play in? Ford Field. Yeah. It was a big park. Right field was 320 down the line, but it had a 50-foot screen, 50-foot high screen. It had to go over that. Right yeah. center was 406 and 500 in center field, 365 uh, down the left field line. So it, the scoreboard was there, so... Yeah, it hit the ball pretty good to hit it out. There really was so much to love about Forbes Field, starting with the, the grand design of the exterior, the cobblestone streets uh, near the ballpark that are still there, by the way, the 42-story Cathedral of Learning that towered over the infield, the left field scoreboard with the long jeans clock on top. And if you were sitting in the upper deck, what a view. Forbes Field opened up to this green paradise known as Shinley Park. And of course, the iconic outfield brick wall, much of which still stands on the University of Pittsburgh's campus today. To me, it was one of the most beautiful ballparks in baseball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had to describe Ebbets Field to someone who was never able to see a game there, how would you describe it? It was a smaller field, and it, it was easier to hit a home run there than most fields. Yeah, what did you think of the right field wall with all the colorful advertisements and advertisement? You had a scoreboard out there. That was uh, and that was a short right field too. Right, and Bedford Avenue was just on the other side of that right field wall, and a lot of times Gil Hodges or Duke Snyder home run ball would end up crashing through one of the local businesses' windows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't be hitting those home runs off you. Oh, they probably hit some. I don't know. I remember pitching in my ninth straight game there. I've been in eight games in a row, and I was called in in nine straight games at 17 innings at nine games in a row. How did your arm feel after that? Well, you never had a problem with your arm. <laughs> Where was the bullpen, the visiting team bullpen at Ebbets Field? Down the left field line. And so you ran in from there. You're pitching against Jackie Robinson. How do you get Jackie Robinson out? Make him hit the ball on the ground. I remember pitching to him, but I don't remember what he did, you know. When Jackie got on base, he was always a threat to steal. Even when he was on third, he might steal home. Did he ever uh, Did he ever do that off of you? Uh, he never did off me. I don't know if he ever got on against me. I don't know. Probably did. Everybody did sooner or later. But Okay, I want to ask you about Crosley Field. Is this true? Playing the Reds, you come into the game, and with no one out and runners on first and second, one pitch later, you get three outs. And not on a triple play. Well, it's true, but I picked the guy off second first. Then I picked the guy off first, and then I made a pitch to the batter. You picked the runner off second, then picked the runner off first, and then cut the hitter to pop out. Okay, I'd have to look it up, Roy, but I can't imagine that that's ever happened before or since. Three outs, one pitch, not on a triple play. That's what happened. What were your impressions of the polo grounds? I remember being short down both both lines, but it went out pretty quick. And it was long ways to center field. They had the clubhouses in center field that had steps going up to the clubhouse. So when the game was over, everybody headed to center field through the steps to go to the clubhouse. You had to go up maybe 15 steps or something like that to get up to the clubhouse. It was an opening in the fences in center field, dead center field. And to head back to the hotel, did you have to go back down the steps and through the field or the next out the other way you have to go out you didn't, you didn't have to come back down on the field but that was one of the most uniquely shaped ballparks i think in baseball history that 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 and the one in la when they first moved out there coliseum that was only about 310 down the left field line but had a big high screen there 
Wally Moon hit one one night, not off me, but he hit one one night, landed into the second row of seats for a home run, and that screen was about 50, 60 feet high. So it was just a pop-up, 320 feet. <laughs> it fell to the second row of seats. Do you remember playing against Willie Mays at the Polo Grounds? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was there when I come up. He was in San Francisco, too. And you never got nervous facing any of those all-time greats? No. Aaron got one home run off me the last time I faced him up in Montreal. You faced Hank Aaron 57 times. And at age 41, playing for the Montreal Expos, you gave up your first and only home run to him. I know it's not something you wanted to do, but I think it's pretty cool that you were part of his home run record. Yeah, right, right, right. He got one off me. What about Stan Musial? Did you did you get a chance to face him? Yeah, he beat me a ball game last time I faced him. I was at a tenth inning for tie ball game. He hit one on the roof, right right field. I was a short right field too. Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. Yeah, he hit one off you on the roof of the pavilion in right field. Yeah, right. I was picked by him as his all time one of his all time pitchers. That's saying something. Me and Clem Levine were both picked on his all-time team. Oh, Clem Levine from the and Brooklyn Dodgers. Both of us were right-handed, too. He picked us both for his all-time team. Roy, look, you were an absolute pioneer of relief pitching, a six-time All-Star, world champion, and the highest single-season winning percentage in baseball history for a pitcher, including at one point in your career, 22 consecutive victories. My humble opinion, you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, I'll never be there. Well, I've not been there, but um, <laughs> I, I will be inducted. Well, I think you deserve to be. They better do it in a hurry, because I'm 94 years old. <laughs> <laughs> to what do you attribute your longevity? Maybe because I was doing carpentry work in the wintertime and got the arms strong or something. I don't know. What folks may not realize, uh, Roy, in addition to playing baseball for many years, you were also known for singing and playing the guitar. Do you still play? I, I don't play anymore. I can't figure it anymore. My, my fingers don't work anymore. But do you still sing? Well, occasionally. Nothing professional. Well, it's too bad we don't have a guitar handy because I would, uh, I'd love to hear you sing. Listen, Roy, thank you so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. It's been so much fun reliving one of the most memorable World Series in baseball history, the 1960 World Series. You hold many Pirates franchise records and almost single-handedly revolutionized the relief pitcher position. And I hope. I hope that one day we will see you in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, I'd like to have it happen, but in order to get a save, we had to face the tying or winning run in order to get a save back where I played. Now they, they've got three run leads, they get a save. And they only come in in the ninth inning. I come in in the seventh inning on. I went five innings in Chicago one night. We won in the 15th inning. Yeah, those 188 saves you had with the Pirates, they they did not come easily. They were not the easy variety. No, that's facing the tying or winning run. Wow. There's other games where we have a two-run lead, and I never got to no saves for that. Who knows by today's standards how many saves you actually had. Right, right, by today's standards. Well, Roy, I sure do wish you all the best, and uh, I thank you so much for the time today. Okay. You take care and have a great day, okay? All right, you too. He holds the Pirates franchise records for career games, 802. Also, uh, saves with 188. He still holds the NL record for career wins coming in relief, 96. And he held the league mark for career innings pitched in relief, 1,211, all the way up until 1983. 
And with the way he pitched, he probably should have won the 1960 World Series MVP. The award, for the first time in baseball history, went to a player on the losing team, Yankee second baseman Bobby Richardson. Richardson, by the way, was on at season three of the Lost Ballparks podcast, and uh, he talked about that. Editor of Sport Magazine, Ed Fitzgerald, walked in, came over to me and said, I want you to know that you've been voted the most valuable player in the World Series. Well, number one, I didn't think, and, and nobody had before, could ever win from the losing team. And I was thrilled to receive the award, but it was negated by the fact that we had lost the World Series. And along with the MVP trophy, you also won, you won a Corvette, 1960 Corvette. 1960 Corvette, and I picked it out the next day at a dealership in New York and had a friend up and he drove it home for me. Pirates pitcher Roy Face, who had an amazing World Series in 1960. He did. He sent you you a letter. He called you. What did he say? He said, you're still driving my Corvette. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I said, you had a good series. I said, I was more surprised than you were that you did get it. My nephew Gabe was asking me the other day, what was the most exciting playoff game in baseball history? And I think you can make a pretty strong argument for Game 7 of the 1960 World Series. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Xavier Guerra, Briggs Buckingham, Mike Dunn, Maddie Zavlakis, and Kyle Schmidt. The Lost Ballparks podcast is a labor of love and would not be possible without your support. If you'd like to elevate your podcast experience and hear episodes a week early, as well as some other cool benefits, including behind-the-scenes videos, go to lostballparks.com and click on our Patreon page. Again, we couldn't do this without your support, so thank you. We'll talk to you next week here on the Lost Ballparks Podcast.